0: Six
1: weirdos, weirdos,
0: Roo, Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Will Miller, a political scientist now employed as an associate vice president with Campus Labs. And joining me today again is Alexander Philandra, an associate professor of political science at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Um, and I've had a lot of fun doing the the two shows you've hopefully listened to or had a chance to listen to already with Alexandra. Um, and for today's show, we're gonna we're gonna do things a little bit differently. We're gonna talk about um, Trump's approval ratings, where he sits, what 2020 looks like, and how we've sort of got to where we are. Uh, and then we're gonna talk a little bit about Alexandra's academic research, which she and I had a chance to speak about before doing uh, the Saturday show. Um, and I think there's a lot of really interesting dynamics to bring into some. Some current conversations and then we'll close with a question or two from the the mailbag um, as well um, so Alex, i guess we'll start with this i think you know obviously even i coming from the right perspective has been uh, a little more skeptical of trump this week than maybe i've been in previous months yet it's also the same week where we see the highest approval numbers of his presidency show up um, sitting at 46 percent um, parallel or slightly above where obama was given the same time frame um, and I think for a lot of Americans, that's surprising. I am sure that I will have somebody on the Facebook page this week post that I am making up numbers or pulling them out of thin air because there's no way that can be right. But I've looked at it four different ways, and that's where we are. Um, how do you react to that, and what do you think's causing it?
1: Yeah, it's a, an interesting puzzle. Um, I think that, uh, you know, it's one data point is not enough. To, um, to make a conclusion about whether the, uh, his approval rating is actually this strong. Um, we are seeing uh, him go out a lot and doing his uh, campaign-style rallies uh, and uh, getting play from that. I mean, he is in full campaign mode, even as the Democrats are starting to deal with the, what are we, 22 now candidates? Um, So uh, it is not clear to me where and why his approval rating uh, has improved. Um, Maybe it is uh, in part, I'll start out from my research, it could be that this is actually um, a response to the Mueller report. This is sort of uh basically an attempt by um the republicans and maybe some independents to back the president in the face of uh of the assault from uh uh the aftermath of the Mueller report
0: and i think that's possible but i mean i feel like we've even seen you know slight upward trends and again obviously very slight um as the Mueller report was sort of wrapping up and we were waiting, part of me wonders, you know, what role the economy's played here. Um, and then what it really makes me wonder is, you know, I think the economy can only continue as it has for the last two or three years for so long before we take that um, unfortunate downturn at some point. And exactly what the relationship between an economic downturn and Trump support will, will end up being or end up um, ultimately causing. And I think you're right. If we look at the next 16 months, and we think about the fact that yeah, 22, 23, whatever number of Democratic candidates we're at today, and whatever we end up at, what are we really gaining from that? Um, you know, is that really the way Democrats want to go here? I thought Democrats, in all honesty, would have learned from Republicans in the past and realized that basically cannibalizing each other over the course of a two-year primary is not the way to find a candidate that can go out and beat a beat an incumbent who's again, even if it's just one poll, I think the 46% is um, higher than I would have guessed, regardless of how they sampled, who they sampled, or what they included. Um, So I think there's interesting points there as we think about, you know, what do you think happens with Trump and his numbers over the next year and a third leading into November of 2020?
1: A lot will depend on where these investigations go. Um, But, um, and of course, You know, right now, we don't have a polar side on the Democratic side. There is no obvious um, candidate who is going to unite the left or uh, sort of mobilize on that side. Um, Even though Biden seems to be the leading candidate, I am not happy about that. I do not want, uh, you know, a candidate in his 70s. the, the greatest generation has done its job and it should sort of take a step back and allow uh, the next generation, uh, our generation, to take leadership roles and uh, um, participate. I mean, Biden was born in the 1940s, for God's sake. Uh, we need, so it was Bernie. We we need to move away from that. Um, But while we have these uh, 20 candidates, the reason that we have these 20 candidates is because of the the weakening of the party. Uh, For sure, the Democrats are aware of what happened in 2016, but at the individual level for every single candidate, um, there is the incentive and the, Obviously, all these people have the belief that um, they may have a path to uh, the presidency or the vice presidency. Uh, so uh, given that they can basically collect un- unlimited funding from independent sources, um, the party has very little say in uh, in who gets the... Uh, to promote it, so this is how we end up with so much competition um, at a time where the party should be uniting and uniting probably around a not too controversial a figure. I understand the mobilization power of uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, but um, I am not sure that that is uh where the democratic Party should be going um in terms of uh its vision for the future so we'll see what happens um with that but uh in terms of the the republicans they're definitely uh fully behind um trump and i think that uh uh, I suspect that there's very little that Trump can do or that these investigations can produce um, short of like the body of Jimmy, Jimmy Hoffa that uh, could actually change the, the views of the Republicans on Trump.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, people who support Trump right now are going to support Trump through the end of this, I think, regardless. Um, and I don't disagree with you either with, you know, from the Democratic angle. They need to go younger, for sure. Um, I think the hard part is the, the younger candidates are the, the weaker side of the bench right now. Um, and I think it's interesting to see how they're going to parse that out or pull that out. I mean, again, I mean, obviously, AOC is not, not eligible this go-round. But as a Republican, I'd love to see AOC on the ballot. It doesn't matter who she's next to. I can't see her winning at that level of an election. And again, it's almost unfair to her because that's based off perception as much as anything else, um, that she's kind of positioned herself to be judged in certain ways on certain areas that aren't necessarily activity-based. But the one place I will say I disagree is I just refuse to believe that these 23 people, 22 people, actually all see a path to the presidency or even the vice presidency. And as listeners have probably realized, I mean, Tim Ryan is going to be my whipping boy on this forever. If Tim Ryan is so mentally delusioned to think that he deserves or could be in the White House or the vice presidency, that's something a doctor needs to help him with, not a political scientist, not a voter, not the mass media. I feel like we have a bunch of candidates with such a self-inflated view of ego that they get themselves into these races because they went to one diner in Davenport, Iowa, and one person said, you're a nice guy, you should run to pre- run for president, or you're a strong woman, you should run for president. And then they go in full bore, and what they actually do is water down and dilute strong candidates. Um, I thought one of the most interesting things I saw this week looking at the 2020 elections was for the first time in my life, I sat down and found myself relating to Elizabeth Warren uh, because they talked about Elizabeth Warren having to fly out of gate 35X at DCA which is the absolute epitome of hell on earth uh, where you go and stand in the cattle call line and then get on the bus and get taken to your tiny plane to wherever you're flying. Um, And I was sitting there and I was like, my God, I was like Elizabeth Warren feels my pain in a very different way than I may have expected. But I, I just keep coming back to Democrats are going to have to figure out how do they get past Bernie and Joe Biden? Because I agree with you. Their time was in the past. And as a Democrat, I would be concerned with the fact that me, leaning right, looks at Joe Biden and says, I may actually be able to think about supporting Joe Biden in this election if these series of things happen. But in reality, we're going to have even more distractions with somebody like Biden running because we're going to, to your point, have a 40-year history to go back and look at we're going to have things like Rudy Giuliani deciding that I'm going to play bad cop against everybody and head off to foreign countries to get them to investigate. Um, with Bernie, we obviously have a track record here. And I just have general questions about looking at Bernie on the campaign trail from a health perspective of, of what he has in him. Um, so they have to allow for that that candidate that maybe is sitting, I don't want to say second tier, but is sitting on the back end of first tier today, They need to do more to help them before they end up fighting for 40% of the vote in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada. Um, And ultimately, again, I think cannibalizing is the right word, where they destroy each other and basically give Republicans, here is the blueprint to beat this candidate because they won this series of primaries, never getting more than 30%, which is going to drag this on longer and longer and longer and longer. And the more they're turned on each other, The less time they can spend coming after Trump in the right wing, they can't get into the investigation. Um, And if it turns into a a more or less show of strength on who do we think can be the meanest to Trump, all they're going to do there over the course of the two-year primary is pit it so that Republicans that are on the fence are going to turn back to the right because they don't like the way they're attacking from the left throughout the entire primary when they should be focusing on one another. Um, I think it's going to be very interesting how that works out. And I think the other thing that's going to be very interesting is how states handle primary access this year. Um, My guess is you're going to have a lot of Republicans go in and vote in Democratic primaries in states where they can to help kind of pick who do we want Trump going up against. Um, And in those cases, you might see Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders do very well because they have new supporters that are there for for one show only, one night only appearances uh, before moving back.
1: You mean that uh, Republicans are not going to go out and vote for Bill Weld?
0: <laughs> I would be shocked. I'm sure Bill Weld's going to get a vote here and there, but uh, I'm not sure what that voter looks like yet.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but no, I I I agree. And um, one of the there are a couple of interesting things um, as I look at the Republic, uh, the Democratic field here is that. I don't know what the Democrats are thinking with focusing yet again on the presidency, and this time, in 2016, they faced, um, and in 2018, I mean, they faced a horrendous senatorial map. They were defending a huge number of seats in the Senate. I think it was, if I if I remember correctly, like. 20 or 22 seats were um, Democratic or competitive. Uh, This time around, uh, the tables are turning and there are, I think, a number of um, Republicans who are going to be on the ballot who have good reason to be worried uh, depending on, uh, you know, how uh, upset independents um, get with Trump and how motivated the Democrats um, are going to be to turn out and where are the quality candidates uh, on the Democratic side why on earth is Beto who came really close in Texas against Ted Cruz why isn't he challenging um, John Corman? Oh,
0: well, because why he was born he- to be president remember?
1: He, can be he went from a man of the
0: people to I was I've been chosen for this. I am an elitist. He um, has
1: plenty of time in the future to be president. Um, it's it's just very um, strange to me that the Democrats um, are uh, not putting equal care and attention to the Senate races because even if they win the presidency, given the way American politics has worked for the past 20 years and and certainly for the past two or three years, um, the only way for the Democrats to actually pursue any kind of policy agenda is by having unified government. Um, we, We will have to have um both houses of Congress and the presidency if the Democrats are, are going to basically repair the damage to Obamacare, pursue a comprehensive immigration reform, um change the tax code, uh do reforms on education, whatever they want to do, they're not gonna get it through um a Republican Senate. So To have 22 candidates for the presidency and, you know, unknowns running against established Republicans who are vulnerable for Senate races is kind of suicidal. I don't get it. It's not a good strategy.
0: Exactly. And I feel like, you know, I've used the metaphor before, and I want to make I want to explain it well before I go into what I'm saying. I use a clown car at the circus. This isn't because I'm calling the Democratic candidates clowns. But you sit there and you watch 22 people get out of the tiny vehicle, and you're like, there can't possibly be anybody else in that car. And then here come eight more people at the field. And I just look at this, and it's not just that we don't have that unity right now. It's that the candidates are so diverse. I mean, Beto's a great example. Mayor Pete's a great example. I mean, I've said on the show before, my biggest concern for Mayor Pete is I love what he's running on. I love the things he's, he's saying and how he says them. I don't agree on every policy, obviously. But that's a guy right there that I feel like Washington, D.C. eats alive in his first few years um, because he's too green and not ready. The South Bend City Council is not Congress. Um,
1: exactly. He's like but, worse than Carter.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's Obama. I mean, again, if we go back, we can look at how Barack Obama gets to the Senate. Barack Obama gets to the Senate because the woman from Star Trek doesn't like her husband's weird sexual fetish. Um, and then we fly in Alan Keyes to try to beat Barack Obama. I mean, there's all sorts of stories that lead to this. But Mayor Pete is saying, I think I'm ready today. And I'm like, you, 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 there are some natural steps you could take where you don't become part of the establishment, but you still get a little bit of um, exposure and growth. Before you decide that you're ready to take over the the most powerful position in the United States.
1: Yeah, Um, and and this is part of the Trump effect that basically there is this sudden belief that basically if Trump did it, anybody can do it. And, you know, anybody can do better than Trump given how bad he's running the federal government.
0: Yeah, it's true. Let's actually, you've already brought it up a little bit, Alexandra. Let's spend a couple of minutes talking about um, some of your academic research. uh, If you wanted to share with listeners sort of what you study and how you study it, um, and then we'll kind of tie it into some of the things that are going on today in that Trump effect and what we're seeing from both uh, Republicans and Democrats in terms of in-group control.
1: Sure. So basically, um, part of my research looks at um, the role of... um, political identities uh, in shaping attitudes and support for leaders and the role of leaders within political groups. Um, a lot of the effort in political science has been to study uh, conflict between parties and we know a lot for example like it's not going to be a surprise to anybody to say, well if something is proposed by a Republican, no Democrats going to ever accept that. Uh, in this polarized environment, that basically it is very easy to flip preferences in public opinion by just changing who's proposing something. Um, So if uh, healthcare is proposed by a Republican, if Obamacare basically was proposed by a Republican, the Republicans would love it, the Democrats wouldn't, and Mm -hmm. vice versa. Uh, But we don't know very much about how people make decisions when conflict occurs within the party. Because the going theory is that, you know, you use the party cues, your, your affiliation with the party to decide how to respond in any given situation. You'll do what is consistent with your partisan identity. But what happens when that goes away and basically you have to decide between different fractions, uh, factions of the party or different leaders within the party. And that's where the role of the leader within a social group and within the party becomes a really, really important um, thing that political scientists actually have not thought about much because leadership studies in political science are more in the vein of Arthur Schlesinger Jr., who has basically talked about the imperial presidency and sort of like the historical evaluations of how presidents and how leaders have done um, in terms of judging their record, But from the perspective of how they function and what do they do um, within the, uh, the party and how does Do the partisans respond to that? We don't know much. So uh, we did a set of experiments where we looked at how people respond to conflict within uh, their party. So we proposed, we showed um, quasi-hypothetical scenarios, basically drawn from uh, real life, like uh, SVU, uh, Law and Order SVU would say, I think, um, where we asked people, so this Republican governor uh, pardoned a, um, a party insider who was convicted of um, money laundering in favor of the party, basically uh, financial contributions that were illegal, but to favor the party. Um, and uh, And then after they evaluated what, the leader did, what the governor did in terms of this pardon, we also then said to half of the people, we said, well, a uh, the leader of your party in the legislature uh, approved of this pardon. And to the other half, we said that, well, the leader of your party in the legislature actually came out very critical um, against this pardon and called it unethical and said that this is not the way our party should behave and this is not what we do. And then we asked people to evaluate um, both the, uh, the governor, the hypothetical governor who issued the pardon, and also the leader in the legislature. And what we found again and again is that people have a very strong in-group bias, and that the party leader plays a very key role um, within social groups. Basically, the party leader becomes um, the prototypical member, meaning he, he embodies, in a sense, the characteristics um, of what the proper ideal member of that group should be. So it's what you aspire to and what you look, what the party should look like. Um, and it is what you want to be close to in order to maximize your distance from the out group, which in political psychology is an important function for social groups. So when this very central figure in Terms of like how the party identity is defined is threatened by criticism. People don't take that well. So first they dismiss um, the the action basically as um, as inappropriate, um, and then they basically either don't take this into account and basically has no effect in whether they uh, vote or they would like, or they like uh, the governor um, or they penalize the the critic. So in-group criticism is a very fraught action. Somebody coming out from within the party and saying that, no, what we're doing is wrong is very, very dangerous. Um, because it can be seen not as legitimate criticism, um, but actually as a threat to the party and as deviance. And it can be severely penalized.
0: Well, let's use a a good concrete example from this week. I mean, here, Richard Burr, who's been a, you know, a moderate conservative, consistent Republican voter, has never shown signs of being anti-Trump at any point since Trump's been elected, really issues a subpoena to Trump Jr. Should he be concerned about retribution?
1: Yes, he should definitely be concerned about retribution. Um, And you see the same thing with Lindsey Graham. Um, Lindsey Graham was, um, you know, John McCain's best friend. He was uh, mildly anti-Trump, and he's up for re-election in South Carolina, and he has become Trump's best friend. You see that with Rand Paul. Rand Paul is supposed to be the principal libertarian. He has become, you know, Trump's best friend. Ted Cruz. Yeah, and,
0: Rand, and Rand Paul has definitely surprised me. Because um, that seemed like that was going to be a, a constant battling of heads. Just, in all honesty, not even off personality, but off of, you know, Paul being very cerebral, very educated, always has taken a very, you know, kind of, Methodical, normative spin to things, and Trump is just the polar opposite. I, mean, I figured that would be a bull in a China shop versus a big thinker. Um, but that definitely isn't how it's played out.
1: No, and Ted Cruz is actually the really sad example because you know after what he went through in the primary and how he was humiliated by Trump in the primary and the stuff that he that Trump said about his father and his wife and, like, all the personal um, insults, uh, Ted Cruz was forced to basically grovel to Trump and go and bring him to Texas in order to ensure that he would um, overcome the, the challenge from Better work.
0: Yeah, and again, I mean, it's really interesting to me always to see what politicians are, are willing to do as part of that. I guess my question, too, is when we look at the Democrats today, I mean, obviously, I would assume that, you know, at this moment, Nancy Pelosi is probably considered by most to be the quote unquote leader um, as we figure out what happens in 2020. But we don't hear her mentioned as much as we think about the 2020 candidates. At what point does that transition happen in terms of who's really leading that group and sending the cues to everybody else? And could Pelosi swing the primaries if she was more willing to do that now?
1: I doubt it. Um, I think that basically one of the key interesting things that are about to happen um, in, the, in the spring next year is the fact that California has moved up its primary. Uh, so even though Kamala Harris um, is not a top candidate and it's these two old geezers who are at the top of the charts, Um, she has a significant following in California. So if she plays her cards right, she could be a dark horse in that race. If she gets momentum out of California and if she gets enough money um, to sustain a California campaign, because remember, unlike New Hampshire and Iowa, um, where basically it's personal politics, California is TV politics. You have to have a lot of money to um, to blanket the state with advertisement in order to win. It's not the kind of place where, you know, you go to the caucus and you basically shake hands with uh, the local villagers. Um, that's not how it works with California. And that's going to be a major game changer with uh, how uh, such a major state has uh, repositioned itself on the primary map.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think it'll be interesting to see sort of what happens there and what benefit it does give to Harris, given that you know she's the only one really as well-known there as a local, um, as opposed to an outsider. Um, so definitely interesting stuff, and I think we can still talk about it as we turn towards the mailbag. Really two quick questions I want to tackle in the mailbag today that I say quick questions, but I'm not sure they'll be super quick. Uh, The first question that we got this week is, how will Trump's foreign policy successes and defeats rank against former presidents? If he achieves denuclearization on the Korean Peninsula, is that enough to make, at least in regards to foreign policy, him a great modern president, or would he need wins on Iran, Russia, and Venezuela as well?
1: I can't see Trump becoming a great modern president Um, unless something very surprising happens. I don't think that he can achieve denuclearization. Um, I think that uh, Kim is basically playing games with us. uh, And uh, I don't think that the United States actually has, at this point, really, as we touched upon, um, is really paying the right amount of attention and concentrated, um, we don't have a concentrated strategy on this, so I don't think that there's any chance of uh, nuclear, uh, of denuclearization in uh, in North Korea. Actually, I think that um, he's going to, Kim is going to accelerate um, his program and take advantage of the confrontation with China in order to strengthen his hand uh, rather than... Uh, do anything um, that will weaken his military position.
0: Yeah, and I'm going to be curious to see what happens. Um, I think what's going to be hard on this one, like whenever we sit and think about ranking presidents or labeling presidencies as success or failures, I think, number one, uh, the academic world still has to get their hands on to how they're going to categorize the Trump presidency. I mean, I would almost argue that um, he's not even a postmodern president. He's almost a post-presidency president um, in the way that we think about it and the way that he's sort of framed what's happening and how he's operating. But I do look back at sort of, um, you know, for thinking about hopes of him being viewed as um, a strong foreign uh, policy president, thinking about Nixon and China again, which I've talked about a few times, but the idea of, you know, if we look back at Nixon and took Watergate out, which I know we can't do, and you look back at his presidency, I mean, what he did with China was remarkable. Um, in terms of opening doors, but it takes a while for that to be determined. Uh, my bigger thing is the fact that if you look at a president who's only three years in and we talk about North Korea, Iran, or Russia, and Venezuela, three of which were not necessarily responses to immediate threats, the bigger question is always going to be the, and you just said it kind of eloquently and perfectly, what has he fallen into versus what has actually strategically been done with a purpose in mind at the beginning? Um, and I'm worried that that part will forever plague the Trump presidency, whether it's done in 2020 or continues for another four years, um, that, you know, it's always going to be the argument of he kind of fell into this. Um, And being honest, we could say the same thing about Bush. Um, You know, I think Bush did a good job with a very difficult situation. um, But the response after 9-11 was not something strategically planned out. That was something that was done because we were thrown into a situation where action was absolutely um, mandated. Uh, And that makes it difficult to sit and then judge on because, you know, I think, you know, I think about it hypothetically and say I was president and I'm sitting there getting ready to roll out privatized Social Security, just reading a book to a bunch of school kids. And then somebody lets me know that a terrorist network has taken down the two largest buildings in the United States. How do I respond? And, I, you know, it's hard to judge somebody in that reaction.
1: Yes. I mean, the responding to 9-11 um, is a very different ball game than goading this adversary and that adversary and then doing something like sending uh, a a ship to the Gulf and things like that. Um, Thankfully, we have not had to deal with a real crisis. Um, And uh, hopefully, we will be able to... uh, get through the next uh, whatever period Trump is in in office um, without a major foreign policy crisis uh, because I don't think that we are positioned to really deal effectively with a crisis. A true well, let crisis.
0: me ask you this on that, because I'm curious, and I'm on the fence on this, but I don't have a good answer myself yet. But, Do you think an actual major crisis could, in an off way, help because it would force focus and force us to confront something that is much more real and timely versus kind of going out and just picking who we want to fight next?
1: No, I don't. Because uh, in order to basically respond to a real crisis, you have to have a team in place. That is experienced and has plans on how to diffuse a real crisis. You know, if you have, you, it's sort of like, and here my, I will apologize to the listeners in terms of like my sports analogies because I am terrible at this because I don't follow sports very much. But basically, it's like taking, you know, a little league coach, putting him at the head. Of the, uh, you know, the Chicago Cubs, and basically expecting them to perform in the middle of a snowstorm. Um, it's not going to happen because we don't have um, the personnel, and I don't think that a crisis helps people focus. Um, it's... You have to have the structures underneath. It's it's sort of the same argument as, you know, I am fighting with my spouse, so maybe if we have a baby, uh, things will get better. If you add a stressor to a really difficult relationship, things that don't function, things are going to get much worse. Um. And it's the same kind of underlying logic. If you do not have good working relationships within the top political personnel in the government, if they're not really, really uh, experienced, and we have gotten rid of the most experienced people, if they don't have um, cross-agency um, strong ties and relationships, and there's all this infighting now, and everybody's paranoid about whose head is gonna roll next in this context. a crisis is not gonna bring people together. it's just gonna create confusion and chaos
0: yeah, and again, I think the personality of the person um dealing with it directly will play a little bit of a role because you know my my question was really geared at the idea of is it something that we think could be enough to get Trump to withdraw back and allow others to step forward? But that's not in his personality either. No. So, totally understood. Yeah, I agree. yeah. Uh, Let's ask one other question. Um, and I'm only going to tackle this one because uh, Scott's the, the one who asked it, and I'm always interested on his thoughts here. But um, I think this is a an interesting question. I think it's one that people are still wondering about, um, regardless of where you fall on. um what you would consider sort of Spygate to be. But Scott asked pretty directly who we thought could be the first um, potentially to be indicted there, since there are some grand jury investigations obviously going on around that, um, or if we think anybody will be indicted. Um, and I'll just say on my end, Alexandra, for this one that, you know, I'm not sure there in, there will be an indictment in the end. Um, I think if it's going to be anybody who gets indicted, I could see... Uh, that being Brennan only because Brennan, his self-admitted, um, that he kind of sparked the counterintelligence investigation by sending British intelligence on Trump to American intelligence agencies. Um, I don't think that indictment would ultimately stick, but I think that's an area. Um, on the personal level, I, I would love nothing more than to see Adam Schiff get indicted for anything, to be honest. I just find Adam Schiff be an insufferable human being and politician who doubles down despite having already lost. I mean, I feel like Adam Schiff basically at a point where he went all in, um, lost the round, and then decided to just throw in another million dollars because he was so sure that he actually would win something that has already happened. Um, but I think the concern here, again, is just like with, I think, Democrats at this point would be well-served to move on from the Mueller report um, and start looking more at Trump policy and future things. Um, with Spygate, I do think we need to get to a point where we end up having some closure, which is difficult to do when you still have people arguing about the merits of its existence in the first place.
1: Yeah, I am not sure that um, like, I I am not sure of the contours of Spygate. Um, I don't know that there is much there there. Um, I don't think that um, there are likely indictments coming out of this because I don't think that there's very much evidence. Um, And uh, I think that right now, I mean, there are 18 investigations into Trump and Trump related entities. Um, I don't know whether our focus should be um, on, on this stuff or on um, basically what is really happening with Russia and, and the real clear signals that they're, they are going to try to interfere next year again.
0: Yeah, which is going to be interesting to see how we react to that. And obviously, I think um, what will be especially interesting to me in 2020 will be How do, and again, I'm thinking about local supervisors of elections, how are they going to counterbalance the want for speed and efficiency with results with the assuredness that it's valid voting with no interference? Um, I think it's going to be interesting when people want, you know, if the election closes at 7 o'clock and you're using electronic voting machines, we expect to have full results by 7.15. But if we want to be sure that we haven't had interference and we haven't had problems, that might take a little bit longer. So how does that play out is going to be obviously for for me, a big focal point of what happens 2020 process wise.
1: Yeah. And we will start seeing that in the primaries because there's, you know, it's not just the national election that um, can be the focus of uh, a Russian uh, interference campaign, their democratic primary. Uh, I'm sure that uh, Russia has uh, specific uh, force that it's uh, backing at this point. Uh, True, and, in the uh, Iowa caucuses, you got to make yeah. sure you don't
0: have new Russian neighbors that have just recently moved in and show up to uh, participate in your caucus.
1: You never know. Or that Russian bots are not all over your tweet feed and your uh, Facebook page. And calling you at home.
0: Absolutely, calling you at home, taking over social media. Um, well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked what you heard. Listener supports what keeps the show going, and we truly appreciate it. Subscribing to the show also helps as the sharing episode. easy to do in your podcast app. Just click on the share symbol. It's normally a triangle. Word of mouth is our best advertising, so we'd appreciate that too. And you can obviously always leave reviews and ratings on iTunes to help us out. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page, where we banter amongst each other and with all of you during the week, is available at facebook.com forward slash politics guys page. And we're also on Twitter at politics guys. The executive producers of the politics guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, Will Miller, and Bruce Johnson. This show is produced by Will Miller. We'll be back next Saturday with another episode and we hope you'll join us then.